Hello and welcome to a special bonus beats edition of Inside the Groove. My name is Edward Russell and today I am speaking with author Lucy O'Brien. Lucy wrote Like an Icon, the biography of Madonna which was published in 2007 and has recently been updated. Lucy has also written a biography on Annie Lennox and the official biog for Dusty Springfield. She worked for many years on NME magazine and put special focus on women in pop. In fact, she wrote a book, She Bop, about that very subject in 2002. We had a Skype call. Lucy is lovely. I really enjoyed chatting to her and I hope you enjoyed listening to it too. Thank you, Lucy, for taking part. And um, thank you also for listening to the podcast. I hope you're enjoying it. I am. I am. I really like the detail that you're going into and also really going into um, her music because people don't often do that. I mean, they talk around it and a bit about it. Um, but I'm always fascinated by the working relationships that she has, not just in the studio, but also with choreographers and for her stage shows. And, you know, the way Madonna thinks as an artist um, has always fascinated me um, because it's not obvious and it's not obviously apparent either. You know how some people make quite heavy weather of their artistry and she doesn't. It's almost like you have to seek it out to understand it. Well, I was going to ask you about that because in your book, you talked to a number of the sort of collaborators that Madonna has worked with, whether that be, as you say, um, people in the studio or, or choreographers and stuff like that. Um, and, and I'd like to ask you about some of the things that they may have told you. But I think I want to ask you first for what you think it is that makes Madonna stand out as a musician. Yeah, as a musician, that's a really good question. I think she's first and foremost, she is a songwriter a lyricist. When she was at school, in high school, she loved poetry and she's great at, you know, very vivid, quite evocative phrases. And she's got a, an instinct for melody. Um, and she's also a dancer, so she's got a, a, a really implicit understanding of rhythm and how that works with the melody. I think there's, she's got quite a keen sense of drama, so that goes with the chord progressions as well. So that's where her real strong points are, is with melody, lyrics and chords. And I think she's on very sure ground when, when she's dealing with those all those aspects. I think she's also really clever at uh, being switched on to what people want to hear as well. I think I think it was your book that mentioned actually that she she does a sort of gal pal test with any new music that she plays it to her female friends because she knows if they get it then it's going to work with everybody else. Yes, yeah, she's very very aware of the market, but also um, she's always been interested in that point that the underground hits the mainstream and she always wants to be slightly ahead of the curve and I think a lot of that comes from her time in New York you know at a really crucial point in the 1970s in New York um, hanging out um, on the uh, the emerging hip-hop scene hanging out um, on the punk scene um, and being there and seeing how um, people were being incredibly creative in a very intense way. I think she learned a lot from, from being in New York at that time and has kind of applied that um, into, in, in her work. 
But you don't think that she's necessarily gone out to go, oh, right, I want to do the latest thing now. This is, this is the thing that all the underground people are doing. I want to do it. It's, it's more instinctive than that, isn't it? She, she knows what is going to work. Yes, yes. Um, she, she's incredibly observant. And, um, you know, certainly, I mean, I don't think she does it quite so much now because she's leading a slightly quieter life with her kids in, in Lisbon. But certainly from New York onwards, um, she was going out clubbing regularly. She was going out to gigs regularly. Um, she's got quite a magpie-like brain you know and um, people I talked to who were on the New York scene said that um, uh, she was a great you know I suppose some would say who who being a little uncharitable was that she was a copyist and that she was really really good at you know I think think it was um, Johnny Dinell who said um, yeah there was a a hat check girl um, at the Danceteria who had this amazing haircut and then the very next week Madonna came in with the same colour and exactly the same cut. Um, so she's very good at um, noticing, very observant, very good at noticing um, what is like really vivid, really attractive, um, what people are going for. And you're right, I don't think she does it in a way that's cynical. I really don't. I think she does it from a genuine place of enjoyment and pleasure and wanting to kind of share um, her, her um, excitement, I guess, her excitement for new forms of dance or, new, you know, a new kind of style, musical style or the collision of different styles. Well, I want to talk to you about your book now, uh, Like an Icon, which I think I first read, it feels like it was about 2007, 8. Is that when it came out originally? Um, yeah, it first came out in 2007 and then I updated it um, thoroughly and revised it and everything for her 60th birthday in 2018. Um, and then um, I've done subsequent interviews since then, actually. Um, like I did a huge piece for The Guardian about the recording of the Like a Prayer album. And I was so chuffed about that because I actually got to talk to Pat Leonard and um, Steve Bray after many years of trying to track them down. And it was just fantastic to be able to talk to that whole team around the Like a Prayer album, which I think was quite a special time in in her career. But I'm getting ahead of myself here, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) No, absolutely. I'd like to ask you about some of the things they they spoke to you about, Um, especially Pat Leonard, um, because a recent episode discussed Live to Tell. And it feels that in Pat, she really found the perfect collaborator for her at that time, someone who was able to express what she needed to express. Um, And he's always been very positive about her, um, about her songwriting abilities. Yes. Um, yeah, he um, he first worked with her as a musical arranger on her Like a Virgin tour. Um, and then um, he worked with her on True Blue. And from that, um, you know, they, they had a rapport right from the beginning. And I, and I think you're right. It's he would always um, be, uh, you know, contribute the music. She would contribute the lyrics. And then that created its, its own kind of alchemy. Um, he's someone who absolutely loves chord progressions and melody. Um, and he seemed to be quite in tune with her thinking um, and to be able to find um, the musical motifs to kind of come up with her, to, to, to accompany her phrases. Um, so a really strong partnership, definitely. 
When you did some of the interviews for the book, um, was there anyone you spoke to, perhaps not a name that we instantly recognise, perhaps a musician or one of the backing singers or something, that had some really interesting insights on Madonna for you? Yeah, there were some really interesting conversations. Um, for instance, Andre Betts, who, a rapper-producer who worked on the Erotica album, um, who said... Um, when she, uh, they started songwriting together in this little downtown studio, he said some really rubbishy little um, jingle studio in downtown Manhattan. Uh, they were sitting in this room and he was playing the piano and a rat ran across the floor. <laughs> and, and Madonna said, oh my God, did you see that? And, uh, uh, and he pretended not to see it. And then, and then he said, um, so do you want to leave then? And she says, no, I'm not going to leave. <laughs> you know, I'm not scared of rats. Um, and I thought that showed kind of her strength, her, you know, a, a side to her that was completely unflappable, that when she was in the moment and she was, you know, in a really great um, space writing with him, she didn't want to leave the studio, so she wasn't going to let a rat um, get in the way of her, her enjoyment at that point. <laughs> well, two yeah. stories that people always have from her work in the studio is one that she likes to work really fast, really, really fast. Yeah. And the other is that she's not really interested in big, plush or expensive studios. She's quite happy to sit, you know, perhaps in a rat infested studio. Yes. She, being underground is quite important to her. Yes. I think, you know, what she really, really likes is one to one. Um, and that's something that, you know, Pat Leonard said that um, William Orbit um, said, uh, Andre Betts, you know, all, all the um, songwriters and producers she's worked with, she, um, particularly if it's just one-to-one, -one, she gets nervous if there's too many people in the room. Um, for um, Oh Father on the Like a Prayer album, Pat Leonard had about nine musicians in the room and she said, oh my God, does it have to be this many? You know, she... <laughs> And, and there's a side to her that's really almost little girly um, when she feels um, a bit intimidated and she is quite insecure about her vocals and doesn't like singing in front of a lot of people. Um, she prefers it kind of being a bit more personal, a bit more intimate. And he, he managed to persuade her and say, look, it's really important for this track that the, that the musicians are in the room so we get the live feel. But, um, you know, one of the most powerful tracks they did was when it was just him and her and he was playing the piano and he said she was right at my shoulder and she just sang. And that was Promise to Try, you know, the ballad to her mum. And he said we just hit the record button twice and that was it. Um, yeah. I'll, I want to speak to you about her vocals because... Um, I've mentioned a few times in the podcast how technically, certainly in the early days, her voice wasn't technically great, but is is nonetheless <laughs> very memorable. Um, yeah. She she is not always brilliant when she sings live, but that drama is always there. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on her voice or on her tone or in the way that she performs that you'd like to talk about, perhaps. Um, when she recorded um, the soundtrack to Evita, that was a huge challenge for her. If you think about it, it was kind of like... Um, uh, a bit of uh, one of her scariest scenarios, <laughs> you know, standing in front of an orchestra and having to sing and project. And I think, you know, that's part of what's worried her at certain points is one is pitching and the other is projection, you know, projecting an, a, a loud voice. But she took a lot of singing lessons around that time and she was able to kind of go out of her comfort zone doing a Vita. 
and after that um, her singing really improved and I remember speaking to Marius de Vries who worked with her on Bedtime Stories and then he worked with her again on Ray of Light and he said the difference was really noticeable you know once she'd gone through Evita um, <clears throat> he said she was much more confident um, about singing with that drama in her voice um, and he acted he, he did less takes and she was also more confident in her experimentalism as well which I think really fed into that new sound that you get on Ray of Light. I, I have to ask you this question because I've never found the true answer to it. Madonna hasn't always been given credit for her songwriting and her musicianship. Um, and why do you think that is? Um, I was thinking about this earlier. It, it's it's kind of two things, really. I think um, she doesn't do herself any favours um, because she doesn't talk about it a lot in interviews. So what gets foregrounded in interviews is often the visual style and inventiveness, which is great and the narrative behind the album because each album is like a concept and it's kind of quite autobiographical so she'll talk about her life she'll talk about um maybe musicians she's worked with and new approaches but she won't give you the nuts and bolts of what it's like in the studio and i think it's partly a bit like you know the wizard of oz we we, we never see the the little man behind <laughs> <laughs> behind the podium um, it's almost like she doesn't want to give away too much about the creative process um, and maybe it's because she doesn't a doesn't want to be scrutinized and b that's part of her insecurity in that you know maybe she does feel a bit insecure about um, not being a fully trained musician or vocalist um, and um, uh, maybe doesn't want to dwell on that too much so that when I came to researching the biography I was pleasantly surprised when I talked to a load of musicians and producers um, who all said very similar things about the way she worked in the studio, how hands-on she was, how, you know, a sh how much of a sure hand she had, not just with the songwriting and the lyrics, but also with the melodies and the arrangements and seemed to be quite across all that and across what musicians were doing, you know, and. and a, a very acute ear, you know, really listening. Every time there was a take, she knew exactly what each musician was doing, um, which I think is fascinating um, because uh, it takes a lot to be that confident musically. Um, a lot of female singers, um, well, not just female singers, but singers, um, will just go in and do their take and then go. Um, but she's so much more involved um, in, in, in all different areas. I've heard some tales of her in the studio, possibly some from your book, actually, that she can be quite fiery, especially with her collaborator. And there's been arguments and all sorts of, of things when she's really felt very strong about um, a certain direction. Um, yeah. Is that true? Yeah. Oh, and, you know, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because um, there's a few instances where her instinct is right. You know, when... Mm -hmm. um, uh, like for instance, Nile Rogers thought that "Like a Virgin" was really a really corny song, um, but she had a hunch that that was her signature song, and she had a hunch that she could do something with that because um, on uh, on the surface it is kind of corny. But uh, <laughs> this is a sort of little aside. But 
Um, a few years ago, I went to a punk conference in Portugal, of all places, and we went to this really small underground club where they were playing punk versions of um, uh, a few um, commercial hits, and one of them was this punk version of Like a Virgin. <clears throat> and then I went up to the DJ and I said, can you play the, the Madonna's original version? So he put that on, and I thought, my God, this actually sounds brilliant, and it actually sounds quite kind of underground. And, and I remember talking to Jimmy Brallower, um, the guy who does the drum programming, who did the drum programming for, the, for that track. And he said that they put a lot of effort into um, making the sound very landscaped um, <clears throat> and making the drum sound, he said, very big, fat and wide. So um, it really takes up space um, in, in quite a, a, a very definite way. Um, and I think... That was all part and parcel of Madonna's <clears throat> instinct that this song was going to work and that, that it was going to work in this way. It's really interesting you should say that because I think we think of a lot of Madonna tracks from the 80s as being very typical 80s songs, but uh, I've been studying a lot of them recently for the podcast and actually her 80s music is quite atypical, like A Prayer, um, for example. At the time, everybody was doing house music or, you know, the Stock Hateman mm. Waterman stuff. Mm. And, and like her, is all this big live band and yes. heavy rock guitars and stuff like yes. that. So, so to her, she was always trying to be slightly different and slightly ahead of the curve, I suppose, as you yeah. said. Uh, uh, when I was talking to Pat Leonard about it, and he, he said he was very deliberately um, going for that live sound. And, it was, and he knew it was kind of bucking the trend. Um, and at one point, they were there and a, a writer from Rolling Stone um, came to interview them about, you know, the recording of the album and everything. And um, the, the writer said, so what radio stations do you listen to? Um, and um, uh, Madonna and um, Pat, you know, because of course they're so busy, said, well, we don't, we don't listen to any. And then um, uh, the writer said, well, so how do you know what's new? And then Madonna says, um, we decide what's new. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'd like to bring it slightly more up to date with her music sort of perhaps over the last 10 years. Yeah. Um, I mean, we have to accept the fact that she's not getting the big chart hits that she used to, and I don't think that's because of the music. I think there's a lot of other factors coming into play there. Mm. Um, but it feels like before Madame Max and perhaps even before Rebel Heart, she'd kind of lost focus on her music. Um, I think the MDNA album, yeah. people like William Orbit talked about how it all being done in a very different way from the Ray of Light process yeah. and stuff like that. But it feels like she's a lot more focused now. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on where she's been in recent times. Yeah, I, I felt that, um, like I said earlier, I think the thing is she works very well one-to-one -one in that almost old-fashioned progressive rock style of you, you take ages over an album you work um, with a small team and you go and go and go at it um, and I think with MDMA and Rebel Heart it was kind of um, you know this this fashion now for songwriting teams yeah. production teams and I don't think that's her best thing you know a lot of artists work really well with that, but she just doesn't, you know. Um, and I think Madame X has been much more successful because a lot of the time she was with Mirway. Um, and she did work with other, she did do other collaborations, but the core of the album is kind of her and Mirway. Um, and, um, and I think that's what opens her head 
you know that that's what really makes her creative and then she starts it's almost like when she hits that resonance then she finds the melodies then she finds those really soaring structures for her songs but i think i think she she if she feels a bit restricted or uh, or if people around her are distracted and <laughs> as she said <laughs> in an interview you know on their phones and stuff it's like come on, get off your phones <laughs> You know, this is my time. This is you're in the studio with me. This is my time. You know. So I have to ask you: Do you have a favourite Madonna record or song? Oh, I've got a few, mm-hmm. but um, today, <laughs> today it's Justify My Love. Interesting. Um, yeah, I've always, always loved that. Um, partly because of the way she expresses, you know, that dark. Um, kind of female fantasy and it was so groundbreaking at the time, it was so groundbreaking um, in terms of the the structure, the mood and of course the video to accompany it, it. I mean that was like ground zero wasn't it? (laughs) Absolutely, absolutely Uh, and okay a cheeky question now Is is there a Madonna song that you hear on the radio sometimes and you would quite happily never hear again? (laughs) <laughs> you know, I've never been fond of Material Girl. Um, it's it's to me, it's a sort of little bit tuneless, and it's a bit like um, that side of eighties pop that I was never that fond of. <laughs> I know what you mean. I don't think she's too fond of it either. No, and of course, the sentiments is—it's is, not really where her where she's at either. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think there was ever a period, um, I mean, not just the music, but, but the whole imagery around it, do you think there was ever a period that was really misunderstood by the general public that Madonna had? Ooh, um, you know, I think the obvious time was obviously around erotica mm-hmm. and um, the sex book. I think the sex book was problematic um, because it was a bit, it was like she was trying too hard and I and I and I don't think that that was a, a wholly successful project, but I think because of that, people misunderstood erotica and overlooked yeah. some of the really pioneering stuff that she was doing there. You know, particularly with Doug Wimbish and Andre Betts and and Tony Shimkin, who was just kind of emerging then in his own right, and um, and that's when she took a really interesting turn musically. I think that was the beginning of that whole phase that ended up with Ray of Light and music and that wonderful triptych of albums a bit later on. You know, I think she really, if you think about it, she had True Blue and she went from that that, that very sweet sound of True Blue to erotica. I mean, blimey. <laughs> yeah, it's quite a leap. Yeah. Um, now, a fan favourite, or fan favourites rather, um, and I'm sure you get asked about them all the time, is Adonna and Nikki, of course, because they also performed on tour with her. Uh, yeah. You interviewed Nikki, didn't you, for the book? Well, actually, I was lucky enough to interview both. Um, so, Nikki for the book, and then mm-hmm. Donna, I was able to catch up with um, after that when, when talking to her for the about the Like a Prayer album. Where did you start? There's so many questions for oh, them. Oh, goodness. <laughs> so many questions. Um, Nikki interesting yeah i i think um they had they had some conflict mm-hmm. which um when i spoke to her for the book i think she really wanted to talk about it um because she was i think she genuinely felt quite hurt you know because she thought that madonna was a good friend and then she felt like she'd been shut out mm-hmm. um from um from the world you know the inner sanctum um 
and um, I think they've probably kind of made it up since then um, and Nikki's more sanguine about it um, but you know it's a shame because the three of them um, worked incredibly well together you know there was a, there was those those few tours that they did and then also their work together particularly on um, like a prayer um, they um, Donna and Nikki's voices worked so well with with Madonna's voice and they were um, very in sync with each other in in terms of the singing particularly on the song cherish you know you really hear that and Donna said that they practiced and practiced and practiced that over and over again so where would you like to see Madonna going next what would you like um, her to do in her later years shall, shall I say what would you like to see her do um, I really like the way uh, she's um, experimenting again and you know being in Lisbon just absorbing uh, lots of different styles and kind of global pop styles and Morna and um, Portuguese music and um, and I think that's really enriched what she's doing um, she is what she's still you know even in her 60s she's still one step ahead you know mm-hmm. thinking about she doesn't want to go down and uh, use all the tired old cliches she wants to keep moving which is which is brilliant um, and I saw her show, you know, her show at the, the Palladium and when she performed the song Frozen and I don't know if any listeners um, who went remember this but she, it was, in, it was just incredible because she was, um, she managed to look like this little um, bindi in the middle of her daughter's forehead so in, in the background you have this massive gigantic video of Lourdes dancing with all her hair kind of um, uh, kind of all tussled around her and then Madonna um, was kind of standing on on some steps and just <laughs> at one point standing like this little glittering bindi in the middle of Lourdes's forehead and it said so much to me about their relationship their mother-daughter relationship so I think hopefully she'll continue to do maybe smaller more intimate live shows I mean I know she had lots of trouble um, physically on on this last tour Um, but maybe some small kind of um, artistic project because she's always very good at when she combines um, the music with an element of film or dance Um, so yes I, I, I think you know I'd like to see more of that and do you think she'll ever retire can you imagine that no, <laughs> she'll never retire. She's always going to be. Um, I think she's kind of taking on this this wise woman role now, which is quite interesting. I think she's sort of moving, slightly moving away from um, the sort of sex siren, um, because that that was what really resonated from her live show um, uh, was the the sense of wisdom and a, and a real perspective on life. And and less worried now. You know, she's she's let go a lot of that. I must have a hit. I must be played on the radio. I think she's let go of a lot of that. I mean, obviously, she she wants her records to do well, mm-hmm. but she's not trying to compete with I don't know Ariana Grande or <laughs> <laughs> or Halsey. It must be strange for her because her her peers, her eighties peers, have all died. Strangely, you know, Michael Jackson, Whitney, Prince. That must feel quite strange for her well, you know i think that's part of why we got madame x and we got the, the 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 wiser madonna you know because i think i think it really did hit her um 
oh my god you know prince michael jackson um george michael all these all these artists that were around her and with as big as her at the time all gone whitney you know and and she, i think she was aware that bloody hell it's almost like last woman standing <laughs> um and i think the 1980s music industry was pretty brutal um in in that there it was a actually quite a high risk environment and artists weren't very well looked after um and madonna has survived through strength through natural strength and through um moderation you know she didn't mm. get addicted um to drink or drugs um so she's made her way through and i think i think um that's given her a real perspective and i and it wouldn't surprise me if she kind of maybe revisits that time in quite an interesting way in in um for her next album or the next project she does well that's an interesting idea because she's not somebody that normally likes to look back but i think maybe if she could do it in a different way she'd yeah. possibly consider it yeah yeah i th- i think you know i she knows of, of anyone what it took to climb that greasy pole <laughs> and <laughs> the horrible greasy pole you know um in the in the late 70s 1980s music industry you know quite brutal mm. um so in fact didn't she, she was quoted somewhere saying i know where the bodies are buried you know maybe, <laughs> maybe she's working on her own memoir now you never know maybe well that would be fantastic perhaps, yes. perhaps i'll get her on for a future edition yes <laughs> you never know Thank, oh, lucy i could speak to you for the rest of the day and into tomorrow about madonna but i, I must let you get on thank Aww. you so much for giving the time for this and it's been a real pleasure my, real well my pleasure's all mine uh, and thank you very much well i hope you enjoyed that interview with lucy a lovely lady and lots to talk about on madonna I also hope that you don't mind that you didn't get a regular episode this week, but this has allowed me to catch up a bit. I've got a few more in the bag. So next week you'll be able to hear all about Madonna's 2006 number one single, Hung Up. Until then, thank you for listening and you'll hear from me soon.